like to have you turn to Philippians 3 with me, if you would. And we will look at the last paragraph in that chapter, Philippians 3. <clears throat> One of the reasons I'm teaching this uh, weekend is that I'm about the only staff member that isn't up at uh, family camp. Only one left in town to sort of mind the store. Uh, our family's never gotten into uh, family camp. Debbie's uh, idea of roughing it is slow room service. And um, <laughs> it just doesn't happen to be our uh, particular style. You know, speaking for myself, personally, I can't think of anything that I would rather do than spend a weekend sleeping on the dirt in the same room with two preschool kids. You know, it just sounds like so much fun to me, so, I, you know, I'm sorry I'm missing it myself, but <clears throat> anyway, left, uh, left somebody in town to uh, teach the scriptures. Uh, we bought a tent when we moved to Idaho, uh, kind of Idaho at heart, you know, and we've used it once since we've uh, had it. It's made it up to family camp every year, but we've never been in it when it's been up there. You know. Well, in this paragraph that we're going to look at this morning, Paul is dealing with the importance of role models in the Christian life. I've, uh, as you have been reading the newspapers and following magazine uh, articles in the last number of months that have talked about the... Uh, crying lack of role models in our society, that in each one of the areas in which we typically look to find people to pattern our lives after, we find instead of glorious successes, we find ignoble failures. Uh, Ivan Boski in the business world is heading to jail for insider trading. So in the business world, someone that we would normally admire and look up to and seek to imitate uh, is heading to prison for his offenses. Uh, Lynn Bias, who was a role model for many young uh, athletes, is dead of a cocaine overdose. Uh, Gary Hart, who captured the political aspirations of many young people out of the presidential campaign because he failed to live up to his standards. Jim Baker, a man that many turned to for spiritual nourishment and encouragement, his empire crumbling around him in the wake of a sexual scandal. So in each one of these areas where we typically look for people to admire and respect and uh, pattern our own lives after in business and in politics and in sports and even in the church we find instead a string of uh, failures and pedestals as someone has said are empty yet Paul realized how important it is for us to have models to imitate it's so crucial for us in growing up as believers to have people who flesh out the truth that we see in the scripture that have been able to take the teachings and the truth of the scripture and incorporate it and incarnate it in their lives so that we can see what the truth looks like in action and imitate that and pattern our own lives after it. And that's Paul's subject in this little paragraph. <clears throat> to give you a simple outline, he gives us two commands in this paragraph, the first one in verse 17 and the second one in verse 1 of chapter 4. Those will be the two pegs that I'll hang my thoughts on, his command, first of all, in verse 17, to imitate Christ-like examples of the Christian life, and secondly, in 4.1, to stand firm in the Lord. Those are his two injunctions to the Philippians. We'll take that as our Paul's two injunctions to us this morning. So this is the first command, and then in verses 18 through 21, he gives us a reason to respond to these commands and obey them. Verse 17, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Brethren, join in following my example 
and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So Paul's first word to us is to pattern our lives after those who are imitating the apostles. Pattern our lives after those who are living Christ-like lives and walking in the power and the character of Jesus Christ and the apostles. Use that as the pattern for your own life. I'm married to an accomplished uh, seamstress, and so I've come to realize the importance of patterns in life. When Debbie sees a dress that she would like to wear or a dress that she would like Janet to wear, the first thing she looks for is a pattern. takes the guesswork out of producing a dress like that. So she'll look for a pattern that she can follow and, and trace to produce, to flesh out, to incarnate uh, what is only a dream and a concept and a picture. To turn it into reality requires a pattern. Same thing is true, Paul says, in the spiritual life. Uh, occasionally you will read in one of the uh, in a newspaper story about two celebrity actresses who show up at a famous bash uh, wearing the same dress. Sort of a major social uh, blunder. But that reveals something about those two women is that uh, if you see two women show up at a party in, in a dress cut from the same pattern, you know something about them. You know they've been to the same designer. And that's something of what Paul has in mind here, that as people observe the pattern of our life, as they see the way we live, the way we handle ourselves, the way we respond to people, the way we love people, they will recognize the same pattern. Here's a life that's cut and modeled after the same pattern. Those people have been to the same designer. Paul realizes, as I said, how important it is for us to have these kind of models to imitate. So we see the truth fleshed out and incarnate in, in somebody's life. Many skills that we possess, we learn in just this way, by imitating someone who knows how to do it. This is how I learned uh, to play golf. You'd never know it by watching me play. But I patterned my swing after uh, Ben Hogan. And the way I did this, uh, he's a famous golfer of a preceding generation. He wrote a book on uh, golf swing. So I bought this book, and I opened up to page one. And on one page, there was a text. It begins with the grip. The grip's the most uh, foundational part of the golf swing. So I read his description of what the grip on a golf club was supposed to be. Now, I struggled with grasping the concepts. I could understand the words, but visualizing it was difficult. But fortunately, for my benefit, on the opposite page, there was a picture that was taken of Ben Hogan actually gripping a golf club. And I could see what the text looked like in reality, what it looked like in action. The combination of the text and the picture that accompanied it, I was able to pattern my own grip after the grip of a famous golfer. And it went like that page after page. I remember just turning one page at a time. Read the text, I'd see the picture, and I'd imitate everything I saw in that book. And built a golf swing one page at a time by imitating a master, somebody who knew what he was doing. And Paul says the same kind of principle applies to the spiritual life. That's how we develop a mature and effective Christ-like walk, is taking the text of the Scripture... And then seeing people who have taken this text, the concepts, the truths, and are living it out, or fleshing it out, and imitating them, patterning ourselves after them. The word that he uses for observe in verse 17, observe those who walk according to this pattern, 
is the word from which we get the English word scope. We use it in words like telescope and uh, use it for words for microscope and for gyroscope and for mouthwash. But the idea of... <clears throat> the imagery that came to my mind was the scope on a rifle. You've got the crosshairs and the scope. And uh, the metaphor is that we are to take the scope and we're to line up people in the crosshairs whose walk with God we admire and respect and learn to walk like they do and imitate their pattern of life. Paul tells us there are two places to find these examples. First of all, he says, join in following my example. That the first set of examples that we have to imitate are the apostles themselves. So Paul's encouragement is as we read the epistles, is not simply to seek to understand the truth that they tell us, but to see how that truth has been fleshed out in their own daily walk and observe the way they respond and feel and think and act and relate to people and take that as a pattern for our own lives. So look for the man behind the epistle. Not just the truth in the epistle, but the man behind it. We've seen something of Paul's example in this very chapter. Forgetting what lies behind, he says, for instance. And he teaches us by his own example the importance of putting behind us the mistakes and the, and the failures and the weaknesses and the blowouts in the past. And instead of being hung up and constantly pondering and meditating on how life could have been and what we should have done, instead, to think forward, to reach forward for what lies ahead. And we see in Paul's life his emphasis, his goal in life of getting to know Jesus. And so we observe not what he tells us, but we observe his life and the way it looks when he uh, designs his own life according to the pattern. And then prior to the life of the apostles, behind them we have the life of Jesus in the Gospels to study and to imitate. So I'd encourage you to do that as you read the Gospels, not just to listen to the words of Jesus, but look at the life of Jesus and observe the way he walked and talked and lived. And we can avoid many problems in this way. Remember, growing up, I was taught what I've come to see was a very unbiblical view of separation, for instance. What I was taught when I grew up was that that separation, biblical separation, come out from among them and be separate. That biblical separation was geographical in nature. That we as Christians were to have as little to do with non-Christians. To kind of minimize the sort of contact that we had with them because we might be contaminated by that contact. But if you look at the life of Jesus, you see that that's not how he lived. That he was uh, called the friend of sinners that he uh, socialized with uh, prostitutes and adulterers and tax gatherers, and they saw something in him that was magnetic and appealing and drew them to him. And he, in turn, befriended them and loved them and sought to impart the truth of God to them in the context of that relationship. So we see in his lifestyle that separation is not geographical in nature, but it's moral. It's morally distinct, not geographically separate. And also we see in a passage I looked at with some of my interns this week that Jesus saw the importance, for example, in life of having time to rest. Saw the importance of leisure and, and recreation. Time to gear down and shift into neutral and relax. One passage in Matthew that I just read this last week, Jesus asked the disciples, he says, why don't we get away for a while? Let's go across the lake and take some time for R&R. &R. So they set out across the lake. And so we see the value of that in the appropriate place. The concept of burning yourself out for Jesus or burning yourself out for God is not the kind of lifestyle we see depicted 
in the Lord's life. There was a pace to it and a, and a leisure to it and a calmness about it. It wasn't frantic and hurry. And yet we see also when he got to the other side of the lake that a bunch of people followed him because they were hungry. And he says when he saw them, saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd, he had compassion on them. And he deferred his plans for leisure and weekend uh, for the weekend in order to minister to these people. So again, we see in his life an example uh, to imitate. Remember reading a biography of a famous uh, Scottish uh, teacher of the word of the 18th century, Robert Murray McShane was his name, tremendously eloquent and persuasive and articulate teacher of the scripture. And yet he burned himself out. He pushed his body beyond its limits, pushed himself to the point of exhaustion and, and died at the age of 29 shortcut what could have been a tremendously productive lifetime of ministry. And he realized what he'd done at the end of his life, and he told someone at the very end of his life, he says, God has given me a message to deliver and a horse to ride. Alas, I have broken the horse and cannot deliver the message. Well, he wouldn't have had to say that if he had observed the way in which Jesus walked. Now, Paul also tells us not only do we have examples in the Scripture, in the apostles and in Jesus, but we also have examples in our own Christian fellowship right here in the body at Cole. There are examples or life, lives worth imitating just as there were in the Philippian church. Notice, by the way, the kind of status that Paul gives to these ordinary saints in the church at Philippi. He says, observe those in your own fellowship who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. See how Paul elevates them to the same level on which he stood? He said, there are people in your own fellowship whose lives are just as worthy of imitation as mine. Observe them and pattern your own walk after them. I would encourage you to do that, to look around this fellowship. If you are a, a, a young wife, look around this fellowship for a wife whose walk with God and whose relationship with her husband and family you admire and respect. And observe her in action. Or if you were a young mother, again, do the same thing. Observe those who walk according to a Christ-like pattern in raising their children. If you are a husband, look in this fellowship for those whose relationship with their wives you admire and respect, for their qualities of leadership and love and care and nurture, and then imitate that. If you are a young father, look for fathers in this fellowship who are imitating, imitating the apostolic pattern and observe them and do likewise. If you are in business, uh, look around the fellowship for Christian businessmen whose walk with God and whose business expertise you admire and observe them and imitate them and uh, talk to them. If you have to troubleshoot some problem at work, call them. Meet them for lunch or for coffee and, and ask them, how do you handle this kind of situation when you come across it? I've got a good friend in this fellowship whose name I won't mention to avoid embarrassing him, but he's in the business uh, community, came back from vacation not long ago, and found that in his absence, uh, some unfortunate things had happened. Among them, his boss had gathered his whole staff together and complained about his own performance before the people that had to work with him and for him. And obviously, this would be distressing to anyone, very disappointing, uh, defeating, uh, potentially discouraging, and uh, the kind of thing that could easily make you angry and come in with both barrels loaded, eager to defend your own reputation, stake out your own turf, protect your job and your reputation, and if anything, to make a delicate and tension-filled situation worse by increasing people's tendency to choose sides. 
And yet this man came in with the spirit of Jesus, a calm spirit, a spirit of tact and gentleness and diplomacy, lengthy conversation with his boss to iron things out, talk things through, met with his staff to kind of heal up any potential breaches and secure in them a loyalty to each other and to the company and to his boss and to the task that needed to be done and smoothed over what was a potentially explosive situation. Well, there are many men in our fellowship who are handling their professional lives in just that way with mature, Christ-like attitudes. Find them, observe them, and imitate them. Now, one question we need to ask ourselves before we move on to the next section in this paragraph is to ask ourselves this question. What if other people in our fellowship were training their crosshairs on me and on my life? Would my life be something that's worthy of imitation? Now, I hasten to add, this does not mean we need to be uh, perfect. Uh, Debbie keeps a spotless kitchen, for instance, uh, but it's not because nobody ever makes messes in there. She has two preschool kids and a slovenly husband, and uh, so there are messes that are made in that kitchen all the time, but it's a spotless kitchen because she cleans them up after they're made. Now, that's the point of the Scripture, is that we're spotless and blameless, worthy of imitation, not because we never make mistakes, but because we clean up the messes that we make. And that's what Paul had just said in the previous paragraph. Remember that? How he stressed in his own life that he was aware that he had not arrived. In fact, that's one of the criteria of a life worth imitating, is there's a healthy recognition of how far short of true Christ-likeness we come. And there's a ready willingness to admit that and to acknowledge that before others. Now, Paul goes on in verses 18 and 19 to tell us why it's so important that we uh, select our examples carefully. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. The reason he says we must be careful in selecting our models, even within the fellowship of believers, that there are many who walk according to the pattern of the world rather than the pattern of Christ. And this will be true even in the body of Christ. Many, both within and without the body of Christ, walk in a fashion that is not apostolic or Christ-like. And so you must be careful that you're not influenced and unconsciously begin to imitate people who will lead you away from the cross and away from an allegiance and loyalty to Jesus Christ. Now, Paul describes these people in verse 18 as enemies of the cross, says that their end is destruction. So he says, here are people who are enemies of the very thing that the cross of Christ stands for and that they are headed for destruction, uh, both in this life and in an eternal sense. They are destroying themselves headed for judgment. But notice the way in which Paul says it. He says, I tell you this even weeping. He's very honest and he's very realistic about the fate in store for the enemies of the cross, but notice how it affected him. It caused caused him to weep when he saw what these people were doing to themselves. You find uh, Christians occasionally who seem to take some sort of sadistic glee in anticipating the judgment that godless pagans are going to receive and take great pleasure in sort of uh, reading people a spiritual riot act and uh, take sort of a pleasure in telling them how uh, 
disastrous the judgment is going to be. But when Paul contemplated that, it made him weep. It broke his heart. It troubled him. It distressed him to see what these people are, were doing to themselves. And that's still true. The only person who can safely say to someone else that they are going to hell is a person who can say it with tears in his eyes. Now, Paul describes these people as enemies of the cross. I think what he means by that is that these people, and there are many of them around, Paul says, there are many more enemies of the cross than friends of the cross in your sphere of influence, in your family, and in your school, in your classroom, on the playing field, in your offices, in your neighborhoods. There are many who are enemies of the cross. Now, Paul specifies that they are enemies of the cross, I think, because what he means by this is these are people who are hostile to what the cross teaches us, what the cross of Christ teaches us about life. Now, what the cross represents is God's judgment on our humanity apart from him. What happened on the cross is that Jesus became sin. He became everything that you and I are apart from Jesus Christ. He became what you and I are. And when that happened, God put him to death. Because all that we are apart from Jesus Christ is worthy only of judgment and condemnation. That's what the cross teaches. It teaches us our total bankruptcy. It also teaches us that the path to life is through death. That death is followed by resurrection. That the secret to a life which is rich and which is full and characterized by power and sufficiency and adequacy comes through death. comes through giving up our lives, losing our lives for the sake of the Lord. And giving up our ambitions and our rights and our privileges for his sake. And then allowing him to fulfill us and return to us those ambitions and pleasures which he chooses to return to us. That's how life comes. Now, Paul says there are many people who think that approach to life is absurd. They are enemies of the cross and what it teaches. And so they believe and they will tell you that you do, in fact, have what it takes, that your humanity is not bankrupt, but you have within yourself all it takes to handle life. And you have deep within you hidden reserves of human potential that you've not even dreamed of. And we will help you tap into this hidden reserve so that you can be and do anything that you want. Well, that person, as innocuous and pleasant as that sounds, is an enemy of the cross. Or they will tell you that the path to life lies through refusing to be stepped on by insisting on your rights and standing up for yourself and through assertiveness and winning through intimidation that if you don't stand up for your rights, no one else will. Well, the cross teaches us the path to life is setting aside our rights as Jesus did, did not utter a word in his own defense and yet was raised to newness of life. Well, that person is an enemy of the cross. Now, it doesn't matter how friendly they might be and how well-dressed and how well-educated they are, they are still an enemy of the cross. And people says, be care- Paul says, be careful you don't imitate their example. Now, unfortunately, it's possible for us as believers to be enemies of the cross in our relationship with other believers. Remember, this happened to Peter. When in the same chapter in Matthew 16, where he had had this flash of insight into the character of Jesus, he said to Jesus, you are the son of the living God, And Jesus says to him, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but the Spirit of the living God has. In the next paragraph, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me. 
And the reason that happened is that Peter tried to talk Jesus out of the conviction that Jesus was going to have to go to the cross. Peter said to Jesus, look, you're, you're approaching this thing far too negatively. You have to start thinking positively about life, and these negative things won't happen to you. He had to talk Jesus out of thinking that the cross was necessary. And he became a spokesman, even though he was a friend of Jesus, his, his closest friend among his circle of, in, uh, of intimates. Jesus had to say to Peter, you are speaking as a mouthpiece of Satan, and you are a stumbling block to the plans that God has for me. And we need to remember that in our relationships with close friends, that always the path to life comes through death in some way or another. And we need to remember that when we're seeking to encourage our friends. It's very easy to sympathize and commiserate with them to the point where we simply tell them what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. Now, Paul describes these enemies of the cross in four ways. I'll take these in logical order rather than in sequential order. In verse 19, we have four descriptions of them. The first one I want to draw your attention to is that the enemies of the cross are those whose God is their appetite. Literally, whose God is their belly. As I look around, I see some of us have bigger gods than others. (laughs) Trying to keep mine under manageable control here. But he says their God is their belly. Now, initially, and I think at least this much is what's on Paul's mind, is he's thinking simply of our tendency to consume and to find pleasure in consumption and to pursue pleasure and the satisfaction of physical appetites as if those things would truly satisfy us. That's one of the great lies that the God of this world offers to us is that contentment and happiness and fulfillment And satisfaction is found in the experience of physical pleasure. That that is where it's at. And it begins with food. And obviously someone who overconsumes food is someone who has made his appetite his God. Gluttony is one of the uh, seven uh, venial sins. And rightly so. It's wrong. But Paul also says... And implies in this that there are other sorts of gluttony which are just as destructive to us. There can be the gluttony not of excess, but as C.S. Lewis calls it, the gluttony of delicacy. Where we may not overconsume food, but our preoccupation is with food. All we can think about is food and whether it is nutritious and how much of it we should eat and whether it, how many calories it possesses. It's very easy for us to be preoccupied with these things. And our appetite can become our God often without realizing it. There's a tendency, I think, on the part of many of us, it's very understandable, easy to slip into, to become preoccupied with things like nutrition and diet. And these, uh, the question to ask, is my interest in these things, is my preoccupation with these things, interfering with my ability to love people around me and to love God? If it is, then my appetite has become my God, regardless of how healthy it makes me feel. There's some questions that I think are worth asking about our approach in this area. If this is an important thing to you, ask yourselves this question. If diet and nutrition are important to me, ask yourself the question, how do I feel about those that are not as enlightened as I am on this subject? Do I feel a certain smugness or a certain pride as I look at them? Well, that's a mark of someone whose appetite has become their God. Uh, Am I enslaved to certain eating habits? We've seen some of the really devastating and tragic things that happen 
uh, when people become uh, enslaved to certain eating patterns, eating disorders and anorexia and bulimia. Well, here's someone who was enslaved to, the, to appetite as a god. Another question to ask yourself if nutritional diet is important is to ask yourself, how do you respond when somebody serves you something that's not on the approved list of foods? Uh, you get finicky and uh, hold your nose, or do you accept it with gratitude and with a thankful heart? Paul says these are the kind of things we have to watch for. But Paul has a broader uh, concept in mind, and that is simply what he's warning us against is the folly of thinking that pleasure, physical pleasure in particular, will make us content, will make us happy. Many people, he says, in fact, everyone, Paul would say, he was not a friend of the cross, lives life on this basis without even thinking of it, perhaps, of making pleasure and the pursuit of pleasure and physical comfort and physical convenience the aim and the goal in life. So the enemy of the cross is the one who who thinks pleasure is the highest good, rather than thinking that righteousness is the highest pleasure, which is in fact the case. Now, the God of this world has many ways to get this message across to us that pleasure is the highest good. I'd encourage you to do a self-study this week as you watch TV. Ask yourself, each time you see a commercial come on the air, what the appeal, the basic appeal of this commercial is. And my guess is you will find that almost 100% of them make their appeal to you on the basis that this product will satisfy some physical appetite that you have. It will taste better. It will make you feel better. It will be more comfortable. It will make you look better. It will last longer. It is softer or more durable. Almost in every case, the appeal is to physical pleasure. And see, the approach to life that is being dispensed very subtly is that pleasure and physical pleasure is what will satisfy and what will make you content. My uh, daughter was watching cartoons last week and <clears throat> commercial break came on and they're always introduced. Uh, the announcer says, we'll be right back after these important messages. So Jana watched a, uh ad for Teddy Ruxpin or something come on and she got this quizzical look in her eyes and she looked up at Debbie and said, Mom, are these messages really important? And... Uh, I thought, well, that's the right question to ask. hope she continues to do so. And again, I think the real test about our appetites and the pursuit of pleasures, there's nothing wrong with pleasure. I don't want you to misunderstand me here. God has given us all things richly to enjoy. Pleasure is one of his greatest gifts. But the question is, is my pursuit of pleasure, comfort, convenience, is it uh, something I am pursuing at the expense of my love for others or my love for God? My pursuit of pleasure interfering with my ability to love people and to love God. If so, then my appetites have become my God. Now, a second way he describes them is that their glory is in their shame. Sounds a bit confusing. Their glory is in their shame. But I think what Paul means by this is that the enemies of the cross are those who boast about things of which they ought properly to be ashamed. Occasionally you will have a conversation with someone who will be proud of the way in which they cheated someone out of so much money or got away with this or got away with that. And you say to yourself, you know, that's something of which they really ought to be ashamed. I spent a lot of time in locker rooms in my life and heard a lot of boasting, uh, most of which was anatomically impossible. And uh, that that uh, wasn't struck me as a perfect example of glorying in things that are really shameful. 
whose glory is in their shame. I read an interview with a well-known actress several years ago who was asked why she had divorced eight uh, husbands, and her explanation was that she did not want to commit adultery. So if she decided she wanted to sleep with someone else, she would divorce the husband she had so that she could sleep with this new man. And so she was proud of the fact that she had legally slept with eight different men. Again, that struck me as the very same thing. Her glory, her pride was in something which ought to have been a source of shame. And that's probably happened to you. There are things that you've done in your past, perhaps even in this past week, which when you did them seemed so right at the time and something of which you were proud and yet have come to see it's actually a source of shame. Third thing he says, their end is destruction. In other words, Paul says very honestly that if you pursue pleasure as your aim and as your goal, if the satisfaction of physical desires becomes your aim in life to have bigger and better toys and more comfortable toys and things that are shinier and softer and plusher and nicer to fondle, that the end result of that kind of pursuit is destruction. That if that is your pursuit in life, Paul says, be aware that it will destroy you. Life will begin to deteriorate. It will begin to unravel. It will come apart at the seam. And you can wind up at the end of your life with every toy you've ever wanted and feel a tremendous emptiness and loneliness inside. So Paul says, be aware that it will destroy you. Denmark is a country in our time which probably exalts the pursuit of physical pleasures as uh, honestly and openly as any country in the world. Uh, the appetites are God in, in Denmark. And yet this country, which is kind of a symbol of the pursuit of freedom, is the country which is characterized by the highest per capita divorce rate in the world, the highest per capita suicide rate in the world, and the highest per capita rate of the consumption of tranquilizers. The end is destruction. I think secretly, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to say that at times we envy people who are able to live like that. You read in the newspaper about a guy who wants $80,000 a month so he can spend $12,000 of it on clothes and $4,000 a month on travel. And if you are like me, and I'm betting you are, there's something inside you that says, you know, that would really be nice to be able to live like that to be able to pursue any pleasure at any time you wanted to and have that sort of unbridled freedom to pursue these pleasures. Now, Paul says, if you pursue that sort of life, it'll destroy you. Uh, Oscar Wilde was a famous uh, playwright of the early 20th century, and he was one of these very gifted, wealthy individuals who was able to live that sort of lifestyle, what philosophers call the hedonistic lifestyle. And this is what he said at the end of his life. The gods had given me almost everything, but I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. Tired of being on the heights, I deliberately went to the depths and searched for new sensation. What the paradox was to me in the sphere of thought, perversity became to me in the sphere of passion. I grew careless of the lives of others. I took pleasure where it pleased me and passed on. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character, and that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber one has some day to cry aloud from the housetop. I ceased to be lord over myself. I was no longer the captain of my soul and did not know it. I allowed pleasure to dominate me. 
I ended in horrible disgrace, whose end is destruction. The last characteristic Paul draws our attention to is that they set their minds on earthly things. That is, they are people who live as if the things on earth were the only things that existed or the only things that mattered. That life consists of what you can see and taste and touch and measure and smell. They set their minds on earthly things. Now Paul contrasts this in verse 20 and 21 with one whose mindset is not on earthly things, but on heavenly things, on spiritual realities. For, verse 20, this is the second reason why we should imitate the examples of Christ-like men is because this is our true reality, our true nature. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state, literally the body of our humiliation, into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has to subject all things to himself. So in contrast to those who set their minds on earthly things, Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. Concept of citizenship, of course, would have been an important one to these Philippians, as you're aware from our earlier studies in the book. Philippi was a Roman colony. Roman colonies were established by the empire at commercially and militarily strategic points all over the empire. And these colonies would be populated by Roman soldiers upon their retirement. They would be pensioned off, populated, transplanted to these colonies, and given Roman citizenship. And Roman citizenship at this time was a highly prized commodity. A very small percentage of the inhabitants of the empire were citizens. And it conferred on you certain privileges and benefits and opportunities that were closed to everyone else. So the concept of citizenship was important to these Philippians. And what he reminds them is that our true citizenship, our real citizenship, the citizenship that really counts, the privileges, responsibilities, opportunities that really count, are the one that come with a heavenly commonwealth and with the citizenship in a heavenly kingdom. Now what Paul means by heaven here is not some place out there, but simply the spiritual dimension of life in which we live, which surrounds us, in which we live and move. God lives in heaven, but he's not out there somewhere. He's present with us in this room. He lives in the spiritual, unseen dimension of reality. And Paul says the mark of the friend of the cross, as opposed to the enemy of the cross, the mark of a friend of the cross is that his life is ordered not by the things which he can see and not by pursuing things which he can see and taste and touch, but his life is ordered by realities which cannot be seen. And his pursuit is of things which cannot be tasted and touched and measured and felt. His life is guided by the unseen realities and unseen resources of the spiritual kingdom. And this will make a difference in the way he handles himself. Perhaps you've heard this uh, story before. I had a conversation recently with a a football coach who several years ago was being interviewed for the head coaching position at a Pac-10 school. And um, this would have represented a major advance in his career. And toward the end of the interview, one of the interviewees asked him this very pointed question. What is the most important thing in life to you? And where do you want to be in five years? And if you've heard the story, remember what the man said. What he was expected to say, what the man hoped he would say, is that the most important thing in life to me is 
football, and where I want to be in five years is the Rose Bowl. But this man was a citizen of a heavenly kingdom, and his concern was for the interests of this unseen kingdom. And so his answer was, the most important thing in life to me is Jesus Christ, and where I want to be in five years is wherever God wants me. Now that's how a citizen of a heavenly kingdom speaks and approaches life. Paul says, imitate that where you see it. Now Paul says, we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, we are looking forward to the day when Jesus Christ will step out of that spiritual dimension of life and back into space and time. And when he comes back, Paul says, he will transform the body of our humiliation into conformity with the body of his glory. Now, why would Paul's focus be here on the hope that we have that Jesus will come back and transform our bodies, our bodies of humiliation? Well, I think it does this in contrast to the those whose God is their appetite or their bellies. That's the contrast that he's drawing. That our appetite is not our bodies or our God is not our bodies. In fact, we are looking for the day when these bodies will be transformed in the conformity with the body of Jesus. I think the reason this was such a focus for Paul is that he realized, and if you think about it, you'll see the, the accuracy in Paul's thinking here, that the main obstacle, the main hindrance that we experience to becoming what we want to be in Jesus is the drag that we experience from our physical bodies. Paul calls them bodies of humiliation. That is, our bodies are the things that are constantly humiliating us and revealing to us our own weakness. For instance, when I play golf, my mind tells my body to strike this ball in such a way that it will arc gracefully through the heavens, clear that ravine, and drop softly to the green in, in birdie distance. Now what my body does is humiliate me by slicing the ball out of bounds. Now it's your mind that will tell you what I really want to do tonight is read Ordering Your Private World. And what your body tells you to do is grab a bag of Doritos and watch the equalizer. You know, am I right? <laughs> now this is what Jesus meant when he said that the spirit is willing, but the flesh, that is the human body, is weak. Now you remember when he said that? He said that in the garden to Peter, James, and John. He asked these three closest friends of his to pray with him when he went through his most difficult hour. Now, did these men want to pray with him? Of course they did. They wanted nothing more in life. What happened? Their bodies told them to go to sleep, and so they did. And so Jesus had to repeatedly come back and wake them up, and that's the comment he made to him. The Spirit is willing. He says, I see that you want to pray, but your bodies are weak. You ever had that problem with your prayer life? Your mind and your heart want to pray, and your body wants to sleep. Now, who wins? Well, the body, in my experience, almost always wins. It's your mind that tells you, uh, don't go back for seconds. And it's your body that says, yeah, that's right. Don't go back for seconds. Get it all the first time. Okay? <laughs> and Paul realized that is the battle that we're in, is the battle with impulses that arise from the physical body, from our, our appetites, and must be controlled by the power of Jesus Christ, which he has to subject all things even to himself. So that's the contrast that Paul draws. The enemy of the cross of Christ is the one who pursues physical pleasure as his aim and feels that that will satisfy him. The friend of the cross of Christ is the one who is pursuing unseen goals to be like his Lord and Master Jesus Christ 
and seeks to master the physical impulses, which are constantly a drag on his spiritual life. Now, I hasten to add that the body is not sinful. I don't want to be misunderstood on that. The body itself is not evil. The scriptures are very clear on that. But it has become the place where sin, the sin principle, has taken up residence. It's been exiled from the capital city and exiled to the provinces, that is, the members of my body, where it is waging war against the members of my mind. And Paul says he longs for the day when our bodies will be set free from that struggle, from the law of sin and of death. And that's what I look forward to, the day when my body will do everything that, it, that I tell it to do without complaint. And in the meantime, our challenge is to learn how, by the power that Jesus has to subject all things to himself, to learn how to control the appetites of the body so that we are their master and not their slaves. This is the way Paul, this way C.S. Lewis put it. These small and perishable bodies we now have were given to us as ponies are given to schoolboys. We must learn to manage, not that we may someday be free of horses altogether, but that someday we may ride bareback, confident and rejoicing, those greater mounts, those winged, shining, and world-shaking horses, which perhaps even now expect us with impatience, pawing and snorting in the king's stables. We look for a Lord and Savior who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Then his last command is in four one. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Notice again Paul's love for these Philippians. Notice that what made him happy was people, was not his circumstances that gave him joy or pleasure. He was a citizen of a heavenly kingdom, and what excited him was to see people growing in grace. That was his joy and his crown. By crown here, Paul could be thinking of the victor's wreath in a race, a laurel wreath that a victor would wear on the victory stand. Or he could be thinking of the wreaths that were given to guests at banquets. Kind of our closest parallel would be party hats. You go to a Christmas party, New Year's Eve party, birthday party, somebody will give you a little silly party hat. And if you're immature enough, you'll wear it. But it's a symbol of a festive, joyous occasion. And Paul says, what makes me feel that way, what makes me feel festive and joyous, is when I see you, people, growing in grace. Now, Paul early had been weeping. What made him weep? Was it his circumstances of being in prison? No, it was seeing the spiritual condition and results in life of those who turned their back on the gospel. And that's one of the marks of maturity. As we grow to maturity in Christ, we will find our emotional condition being determined more and more by the spiritual condition of people around us and less and less by our own circumstances. And his last appeal, then, is to stand firm in the Lord. This seems to be drawn from the gladiatorial arena where gladiators would go hand-to-hand in combat and one would be left standing. Paul says, I want you to be the one that stands firm. And you can do so, he says, in the Lord. As you seek to imitate the examples of Christ-like people around you, and to stand, to walk in their footsteps, and to stand firm where they stand firm. You can do so, he says, in the Lord, with the help of the power of Jesus Christ. You notice the verse begins with the word therefore, and he's connecting it to the end of verse 21. Therefore, because Jesus has the power to subject all things to himself, stand firm in him. Depend upon that power, that surpassing greatness of power, to enable you to stand in this week. 
I don't know what kind of pressures or challenges or unseen, unexpected crises will come your way this week. But Paul's example is when they hit, remember the examples of Christ-like people around you and depend upon the power, the indwelling power of Jesus Christ to stand firm and respond by imitating those Christ-like patterns. I'd like to have you stand with me, and I will pray for us all. And then after I pray, dismiss us with a benediction from one of Paul's letters. Father, we are grateful that you have given us so many examples in the Scripture and in our own body to imitate men and women whose lives follow the apostolic pattern and who flesh out the truth for us and make it incarnate so that we might see what it looks like in action. And we pray, Father, that this week, by the power that you have to subject all things to yourself, that you would enable us to imitate those patterns and to stand firm in the Lord. We thank you for your gracious provision of us for us, and we pray that in this week we might understand more of your power and sufficiency. Amen. Conclude with this benediction, and then you're free to go. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.